welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And my friends, I'm so glad that you have joined us for episode 379, Top 10 Fantasy Flight Games. we like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, everyone, welcome back. And we are going way back to one of the greatest board game companies that there ever was. And since these days, everything that was old is new. We think we would bring back an oldie, but a goodie. And of course, there's no better goodie than Fantasy Flight Games. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because every summer, for me at least, for the last like seven years, the, like the highlight was learning what Fantasy Flight was going to do, right? Gen sure. Con's coming up. What's new? They always have some secret, top secret announcement. Some of the games we're going to talk about today were announced and then released at Gen Con, like surprise announcements. I bought some of these at Gen Con. We didn't know they existed a month beforehand. So if we're going to do a top 10 company list, it's got to be Fantasy Flight. Things are a little bit different, of course, (laughs) for this company (laughs) these days. Um, I think the Halcyon days of the, the world's greatest Ameritrash game company are... Probably in the in the rearview mirror, but we're going to talk about some of the greats. Absolutely, and if if uh, Fantasy Flight could do Star Wars, and if Disney's currently doing Obi Wan, we're going to dig up that pile of bones and throw it up on stage and see how it dances. So for this episode, we'll be talking about the top ten Fantasy Flight games. But before we get into all of that fun, Anthony, and again, it's fun. We'll be talking about it in a minute. Let's talk about what everyone else is talking about. Let's talk about our question of the week. All right, let's dive right in. Uh, Question of the week this week. What's your process for rating and organizing your game collection? Assuming you have one. Not everybody does. Uh, So (laughs) (laughs) uh, first up, we got Josh who says, I organize the games by box size. Fitting them on the shelf is more important than sorting by genre, complexity, publisher, etc. I totally get that. I've been there. I've been in the box size consideration phase (laughs) uh, when I have limited space. Uh, AC Holt says, I'm not one to put a numerical value on my enjoyment of the game. I just happen to know which games I like better than others and want will play more than others. So they Mm -hmm. go on to describe the different shelves they have in their house and what lives on which shelf based on what they enjoy playing and what their family enjoys playing and there are breakfast nooks and living room shelves and overflow areas and second overflow areas. <laughs> so um, AC, uh, very much right after my own heart with shelves all over the house, games everywhere. And the organization <laughs> is more or less not linked to anything. Um, Francesca mentions rating happens once as I record the game in my BGG collection, but I no longer edit those values as my opinion evolves. Um, as mm. for organizing, I go by genres. So they have the space shelf, the train shelf, the two-player shelf, the city shelf. Uh, so just kind of organizing things by the different themes, it sounds like. But also sometimes by family. So they also have the tea games together. Teotihuacan, Trismegistus, um, all those kind of organized in the same bucket. Um, mm-hmm. Willie mentions uh, rating the games using the BGG scale to the standard that they have set. So if you go in and look at BGG's ratings, you can look and see what they define each number as. Um, and then just uses a gut feeling based on that rating. So I, I respect that. 
Um, and in terms of organizing, Willie says only a few games have specific locations. For example, I have all of my Fister games together. There's also a Feld section. But other than those two, I tend to have the ones my wife likes enough to display in our living room. <laughs> and then the games worthy of this designation can be either very pretty game boxes, even though she will never play them, like Black Rose War, or games she actually likes and thinks company might also like. Um, I love that. Just games that my sp- games that his partner either enjoys or thinks look nice can go in the living room. Okay. Um, and then my favorite of all, Eric just posts a gift that says chaos. <laughs> chaos reigns. <laughs> um, I honestly, I feel like my game, I had a system back in Pittsburgh when we moved here and they just games kind of went where they went. Um, the games that sure. I like most ended up upstairs and the ones kind of in the second tier ended up downstairs. But beyond that, there's not really any organizational system. Uh, but I have set a goal this summer to kind of go through and reorganize a little bit because it'd be nice to have like, these are the games I really like and want to play and I can reach them. I know where they are because right now that's not how it is. <laughs> sure. I, I think I've had a lot of different variations of that. So whew, I'm trying to think where, where should I get started? All the variations, I, I guess, let me skip all the variations. And I think I've tried them all from one point to the other. And I guess obviously utility is the most important thing because getting those games out of the collection, especially when you have a large collection is really the most important part. Now, currently, the way I'm doing it is listing the games alphabetically and also managing the game collections based upon size and, I guess, genre. So I have two closets, two small closets. One closet I have holding all of the very large or very strangely shaped board games. And then I have another closet that has, I would, I think almost all my miniature games. Cause I think those kind of work for me just because again, if you're going to play a miniature game, you need to have all your stuff. And then the rest of them is alphabetically just so it's easier to find just before that. I used to list my or organize my board games based on desire to play. So I could put the stuff that I really wasn't that much interested or kind of, fell off the, you know, the table a little bit and put that in the back. But then I realized every once in a while, somebody requested a certain particular game. So that was a challenge because now I have to go back and think about it. And then you have like companies like Queen Games where everything is a certain golden color. So you're like, okay, now this is getting confusing. (laughs) I'm not sure. Like I remember the game box, but I'm not sure it's the right thing. And then again, game companies... The thing we often don't think about when we organize is how is the, the game components organized? Because some games will allow you to display the game vertically, but other games, if you do that, everything goes falling and the, the game trays don't, it's just, there's just a, a, a crazy amount of strangeness there. I want to hold my games vertically just because they look better and they're easier to pull out, but horizontally is always the safer bet just because how especially much of the older game trays did not have tops to them. So yeah, if you ever have one of those queen games that have all the queenies inside, yeah, you're never putting that sideways ever again. <laughs> like, So yeah, there's a lot of challenges there. I, I think the funniest thing that I've ever seen in relation to this was the movie High Fidelity, where the main character is like, I'm, I'm, I'm organizing my games. He's like, what is this? Is this alphabetical? Is this, you know, chronological? And he's like, no, it's autobi- 
autobiographical. And I thought that was amazing, right? Like the first game you bought and, and all those kind. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty fantastic. It's a fun part of the hobby. It's a weird, fun part of the hobby that most people don't talk about how you organize your games. And, and again, how you rate your games. I usually rate them after a couple of plays, but then sometimes I'll go back and I'll just be like, I played this a lot more. And it usually varies a half point or a point. It doesn't go too crazy as far as that's concerned. But uh, it's it's definitely one of the things that if you're not into gaming, like if you're not really into gaming, organizing your collection with a methodology or rating your game with a methodology just does not make sense to other people. But to us, it makes total sense. It's like part of the fun. Yeah, 100%. It's... I'm I'm not legitimately excited about reorganizing my collection. And I know like when I do yeah. it, it really stresses out my wife a lot. Like she's like, <laughs> what, why are there boxes all over the house? I'm like, cause some of them are going upstairs. Some of them are going downstairs. Just it's okay. I'll be done in two days. She's like two days. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of games to move. Um, but it's the fun. Sorting. I really enjoy doing it. Commence the sorting of the games every year. There's yes. a refresh of the games. So, <laughs> All right. Well, if you'd like to join all of the fun that we're having on our question of the week, the question of the day comes out on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. And especially if you want to find all of that and a lot of great articles and podcasts, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, your top site for everything board game related. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with our listeners. Now let's talk about the games that we want to get to the table so that we can sort into our collection. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. Uh, so it's been a while since I talked about an 18xx campaign for my acquisition disorder. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know. Back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I moved and the group that I play uh-huh. 18xx games with is still in Pittsburgh and I have yet to find people in Philadelphia. So if you're in Philadelphia and you play 18xx games, message me because I want to play. <laughs> I haven't found anybody yet. Um but the second reason is I ended up buying a bunch of these, like, and a lot of them were cataloged in our acquisition disorders from about two years ago, uh, mid pandemic. So I bought a bunch. I haven't played all of them. I stopped buying them. That's what the healthy decision to do is. But there is a new Kickstarter up from All Aboard Games, and All Aboard Games is kind of the publisher. Like, they make really nice, pretty versions of 18xx games. Not all of these are very pretty, but these ones are. Um, and so they've made some really good ones. Like 18 Chesapeake is like one of the go-to introductory games. 1817 is one of like the biggest, most complicated versions. Um, 1849, 18 Max, 18 New England. They have a bunch, right? Go to their website. There's like 30 of them. But their new wave, they do, they release these in waves, is, uh, has two games in it that I'm really excited about. So Wave 5, up on Kickstarter now and for the next five days, has 1822 Pacific Northwest, which I've talked about this before. I'm originally from Seattle. So things about the Pacific Northwest, I'm just automatically interested in. And so this is a map of Western Washington where I grew up and you are playing an 18XX game in the map of Western Washington. doesn't seem like there's a ton of really major differences there. Um, We have obviously different private companies. There's a timber mechanic. You're, cutting down trees and moving the timber um, as was the case for about 150 years in that area. But it's just cool. Like the area, I'm really interested in that, like thematically. And that's the cool thing about 18xx games. Like if you live in an area that has a history of railways, there's probably one of these games for you. 
Um, so this one looks to be the one for me. And then the, the other one that I'm really interested in, and like all five of these look good, but these are the two I'm really interested in, is 21 Moon. So it's it's an 18xx game, but it's on the moon, so it's got to be the 22nd century, right? Um, so you are building out these little connections and um, spaceport bases and uh, different like public-private ownership shares and companies on the moon. And that's just cool to me. Like there are some 18xx games. I know there's one, I think on Mars, like this has been done before, but not at like this high of a quality. And I just think it's cool to kind of leave that very narrow 50 year period in which trains were being built um, in North America and Europe and go to the future when we might build trains and trams and systems on another planet or moon or wherever it might be. So um, these both look really interesting. Uh, I'm not backing all five of these. I don't even know if I'm going to back two of these because I do have a bunch of 18xx teams I haven't played. But if you do back all five, it's only $400. So, you know, <laughs> it's not crazy or anything. Um, the If you want just one of them, it's 85 which is... I know that's a lot, but that's pretty normal. That's like an average price for an 18xx game, especially on Kickstarter. Um, and you can get two for 170 which is really just doubling the 85 So I will probably back one of these. I have not decided which one yet, but I will decide that this week. Um, I'm leaning towards the Pacific Northwest. But uh, if you're up for 18xx games, if you just like to see what's out there, it's up there right now. There's a couple of expansions mixed in here as well. There's one for 1817, uh, a couple for 1817, actually. So uh, you can check them out. It's on Kickstarter until, let's say, five days from now. So June 30th. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Trains. You either like them or you don't. <laughs> if you're in on this, you're already checking this out. If you're not, I don't know. I can't convince you. So uh, all aboard games. They do really good stuff, though. I don't understand, Ev, out of all of these games here, and again, you might have to do a whole, I, I don't want to say a whole feature, because I, I hope that it's exciting and different. A lot of these train games, again, to someone who doesn't play dreams games, like, they look almost identical. But how are you not going for the 21 moon? Like, you don't have a moon game that has trains? Come on! <laughs> how are you not? Moon! That's, that's, it's the moon, man! I know, that's the problem, though. Like, I... I want all the games that represent where I grew up because there really aren't a lot of games set there. But mm-hmm. then there's the moon, and the moon is cool, <laughs> and I can't afford both, so I'm I'm stuck. That's why I haven't backed this yet because I haven't figured out which game to back because I got to pick one. Uh, maybe you'll live in the moon someday. So there you go. <laughs> maybe there, yeah. There's the there's the, the there's the there's the difference there. All right. Uh. Who knew, like, at this point, like, out of all the games that you would never think would have high price tags, and again, this is no knock against the designers or the publishers, 18XX, right? Because a lot of it, and again, no knock here, no frills kind of graphic design and artwork and stuff like that. Not that the mechanics don't deserve, like, money and stuff like that for putting that stuff together, but yeah, we're at a point, man. Like, things are expensive now. (laughs) Jeez. These have always been expensive, though. I, I will say that. And I think part of it with these is they don't print very many of them, right? Yeah. We're on almost the end of this campaign, and they only have 375 backers. And that's not crazy 
different, right? No. There's the one exception. Um, I can't remember the name of the designer, but he did 1861, 67, and then um, Shikoku. Those actually had a decent number, and he got those prices down to like $45, $50. That's rare. Most of these are very expensive. So, But like, if you know 18XX, you already know that. It does put a big, giant gate in front of it. It makes it hard to get into it mm-hmm. if you're not already into it, which kind of sucks because... Mm-hmm. These games are very good and interesting. And like the simpler ones are very accessible. They don't seem like it, but they are. The complex ones sure. are not at all. So, but, um, but the cost definitely does not help. All right. Well, I'm going to talk to you about two Kickstars that recently came out because I think that the way the industry has been moving over the last several years, especially on Kickstarter, is lighter family gateway games now again i want to want to kind of give an asterisk to that a little bit because we've been talking about lighter family gateway games and as we've recently rediscovered which we should have already known is and and we do right our experience of board gaming for us and our perspective and our positioning is there are some games that do feel lighter family weight gateway-ish but for the you know the rest of the larger public they are very complex games that are you know impenetrable in some cases so uh, i want to talk to you first off about bot factory uh this is a new game uh but obviously in a second you'll see why it's not such a new game but it's a re-implementation of kanban uh this is by lacerda and quintella it's a worker placement game about building toy robots under the supervision of efficiency consultant Sandra. So if you played Kanban, it's Kanban, right? It's a, it's a simple version of Kanban or a simpler version of Kanban. You don't have some of the complex tracks that you have to deal with here, but it's about building bots. So obviously, if you played Kanban before and if you always wondered or had hoped that there was a lighter, easier version of it, and there's been several versions of Kanban that's come out previously. This might be something that's up your aisle, but primarily the game is about using your workers. And again, in that worker placement kind of aspect to be able to put together the different bot components, their different bodies, heads, torsos, and legs, and there's parts that go along with it. There's contract tiles that you have to meet. And of course, there's all the schematics that need to be put together. This has some beautiful again beautiful artwork not a surprise once again from one of you know vitalis starter's great games here and again it's a recognizable not necessarily easier but a recognizable format that a lot of people can get into it has more of a cutesy theme than all of the different combines that we have seen previously and again it looks like a, a little bit of a of a great game the one challenge that happens to be a little bit of a challenge here is if you're going to get buy this on Kickstarter, currently it's backing for $48, which honestly is not bad, especially for a re-implementation of Lacerda's games. Obviously, Lisboa had gotten the re-implementation for the lighter fare. Uh, this game and is up on Kickstarter. They've already surpassed their $100,000 goal. They're at one twenty-three. A little bit low, a little bit slow for a Lacerda game, to say the least. There is six days to back this project, so you have an opportunity if you are so interested in Bot Factory, worker placement game in the, I guess, Kanban universe, by Friday, July 1st. 
So Anthony, I've never played the lighter version Lisboa. Is is this what we're looking at here? It seems like it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the thing about the lighter version of Lisboa, which I did back, I did back Mercado de, de, Lo, de Lisboa. Can't get that out of my mouth. <laughs> um, and I didn't like it very much because that mechanic alone, while very good in the context of the larger game, because it's one thing to keep track of, doesn't do a lot, right? Mm-hmm. You're just, it's it's a spreadsheet effectively. It's, it's vertical and horizontal axes that you're trying to manage. Um, so... It wasn't super interesting. It had a co-designer. I feel like it was just somebody else came in and took Lacerda's design and said, hey, I can make this into a game by itself. And he's like, cool, great, I'll help you. And the game itself was Mm. a solid 6.57, right? Mm. Um, So when this one popped up, I was like, oh, that's cute. It's got Lacerda's name on it. And then I dug in a little bit. and I'm like, oh, I think it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm stuck in between where... I really want to back it because I back everything he does. And if it's good, I'll be really mm-hmm. upset. I didn't back it. Sure. But I'm afraid it's just another Mercado de los Boa, which is sitting on my to sell list. Like it's downstairs yeah. in a pile, probably in a box. So I'm probably not going to back this. Um, if you do, I'll play it and hopefully not be too disappointed. Sure. But <laughs> um, it's hard. It's hard when they like, when you boil these games like this and then you take in like a second designer, like, you don't really know what you're getting and they're selling it off of his name, but I don't know that it's really a hundred percent his game, you know? Yeah. And again, it's one of those things like he developed the original system and this new designer, like in both these games came in and designed this based on that. So of course he gets his name on it, but he really didn't design it. He just designed, I guess the boilerplate. He designed everything that it, that they, they drew from. So, I mean, this is hard for me. Like you said, I love this. I, I love this concept. Right. I love Kanban. I love the concept of putting the bots together. I, I like the more, I guess, somewhat cartoony look to the game. I still don't believe that this game will be light enough to play with the family. I haven't played it yet, so I haven't gotten a review copy or anything. But my assumption is that this is still going to be complex enough that Someone would need to be a play. Someone would need to be a gamer to play this. This might just be a right. shorter version of it. So the game is a pledge of forty eight dollars. Supposedly their post campaign MSRP will be sixty four dollars. Now again, typically you can get board games at a discount. So the question is, you know, if you buy this online later, there's there's a couple of little minor things where certain meeples get you know dressed up a little bit better but it's not a radical difference as far as like i think we had thing with carnegie carnegie the kickstarter version versus the retail version is very different in mm-hmm. its production this is not the case this is just as a couple of different you know graphical design kind of you know flourishes here and there and it's about ten dollars shipping i guess it again it depends on where you're coming from so it's about, I mean, if you order online and you have enough for free shipping, then it's probably going to be an identical price, which is not bad, right? Sometimes you see campaigns that are like, oh, this is at a discount. And you look at the shipping, you're like, oh, and $25 shipping. And you're <laughs> right. like, well, that wipes out the discount. Uh, so, yeah, I, it, this is a hard one. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. I'll let you know, Anthony, I might back it because, again, the price is kind of okay. But, and I don't own Kanban. Weirdly enough, I've been trying to buy it for many years, and every time I try to buy it, 
It's like, it's on sale. It's out of print. Oh, here's a new version of it. It's also out of sale. It's out of print. So <laughs> at some point I will lock something down. Maybe this is it. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, hopefully you do, because I'm probably buying a train game instead. So what are you going to do? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right, all right. Uh, on the lighter version, and this is certainly, I think this does fit well in the family version gateway game, globetrotting. Uh, plan epic vacations by drawing travel routes on your globe in this new game from the creators of Canvas. So probably all of you remember Canvas. We reviewed it. It's been on Kickstarter. It had an expansion. That was the game where you sleeved I guess it's supposed to be different layers of artwork onto a canvas and it made odd and interesting works of art. And then there was symbols on the bottom and you scored them. And it was a, it was a cutesy concept. I own it. I own that and the expansion. I'm glad I do because it is a game that I ever so recently played with a friend of mine just because, you know, I knew I could get that to the table with them. They were interested in art. This seemed like the perfect game for them. It was easy to explain. It was easy to play. It's obviously a little too easy for us gamers who are trying to, like, game out the symbols or something like that. But this is certainly the lightest game that I've seen on Kickstarter in quite some time. And I used to do a Kickstarter podcast. One of the things that really interested me about this game was way back when, when they showed some of the previews, was the globe. So when I talk about, and they talk about a globe here, it is actually a cardboard holder for a globe that's cardboard globe on the inside of, of the earth, plastic on the outside so you could draw on it with dry erase markers. And then what it allows you to do is during the game, there are going to be three destination cards put out in front of you. You will choose one of the destinations and you will choose when you want to be able to travel to that destination, whether it's a spring, summer, or fall. You'll mark that location on this plastic globe and you will put the symbol of that different season. And then throughout the game, you'll have opportunities to travel to other locations. And by using the holder for the globe, you'll be able to draw straight lines to these different cities by tilting the globe in the, in the position that you need to tilt it in. And based upon the distance in which you're traveling, the globe itself will be able to tell you how many dollars it will take to get to that location. So this whole game is about your flight path and taking the best vacation possible. So you're drawing these different locations that you're traveling one to the other. You have a, a passport that, again, has that ability for the dry erase marker to play on. And you want to take the most grand vacation possible, but as cheaply as possible. So you don't want to travel long distances because you'll score two points for every other player who spent more money on their vacation than you did. Now, beyond that, there is a bucket list, which is basically just objective cards. And sometimes the cards are, did you go to a certain location? Did you do a certain thing? And usually, to do, did you do a certain thing is based upon a particular icon. And then again, there's all these other types of global effects as far as how you can score. And whoever can get those first scores first. And then second, think of... Welcome to, right? Those kind of global effect situations. Again, this game is all about the toy factor. The globes here are an outstanding toy factor. I can imagine people walking by and wanting to play this just so that they can play with the globe, draw the lines, 
It comes in a very cute little like old fashioned luggage case. So this toy factor is off the charts. The game itself is $53 if you want the basic edition, $68 if you want the globetrotting limited edition, and that comes with some additional global effects, as well as some what they call travel reward cards, but basically they are asymmetrical player powers. Being that the game is so incredibly simple and light, I can't imagine you not having to back the limited edition. In fact, the limited edition has like over a thousand backers where the regular retail version has under a hundred. So I think everyone's, you know, on the same mind track as far as that's concerned. So yeah, it is $68 for a very simple light game with a very high toy factor. Your your value may differ as far as this is concerned. You can also back some of their other campaigns as part of here. The shipping is going to be the challenge here because this does seem to be a very bulky kind of thing to be able to ship. Now, it doesn't seem to be very expensive because it is going to be very light. But in the U.S. and most of the major countries in Europe and, and some around the world, it's going to be an extra $15.00. So you might want to back for the limited edition because you won't be able to get that at the retail. Retail, you're going to get the regular retail edition. 15 additional dollars obviously adds up to the price here. This is a game I do want to back. I'll be honest with you. Like The toy factor here seems to be so high and the game is so incredibly simple that I think I could get, certainly get family to play this. But that being said, I have said that many times before and family <laughs> have not played. Yep. So... $68 plus tax plus another $15 for shipping. I can't back this. I, I want to back this. I really do want to back this because it's just so damn cute. But yeah. Uh, and the artwork yeah. is beautiful too. Beautiful artwork. Beautiful artwork. I love the artwork. $83 for this, <laughs> including the shipping, is tough. But. Those globes are very cool. They're very They're cool. Very cool. They're very cool. Honestly, I would probably be very interested in backing this if I had not played Canvas. Uh, which, yeah. again, a very cool idea, very interesting implementation. It felt more like an activity than a game. This seems mm -hmm. like it could fall into that same bucket of more activity than game. And I cannot yeah. spend $83 for an activity. I have dozens of activities in my house. <laughs> like, I don't need another one that's going to cost almost $100. Um, but it is very cool looking. Yeah, I think this, yeah, I, I think you could certainly make that comparison here because I think both of these games are more about the game experience than actually about the game itself. The, the globes are amazing. The destination cards, the artwork is gorgeous. I just, I honestly love the, the destination cards. I wish that that was a game in and of itself. It's hard. This this company does a really good job, and I'm and I'm really impressed by their production. This is Road to Infamy. I actually back not too long ago their Halloween game. Don't go in there. Again, I think it's probably going to be more of a game experience. Although it does have dice rolling, so maybe that'll make it feel a little more gameish. But yeah, I get that. I don't know. Like you said, it's it's a toy factor kind of situation, right? I don't know how many toy factor games you need to have in your collection. I'm happy to have Canvas, like I said, because I think it's an activity that 
I don't see in, in very many games where you actually have you're actually creating works of arts that's not like a Pictionary kind of thing. But this is a map, right? This is just a map on a you know on a globe. So that I think we've had. I think we've had several games kind of like this. Sure. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they're getting smart these days. These companies are getting smart. I don't know. It's I, true. I really, I really wish. <laughs> Damn it, guys! Like, come on, do a do a less of you know. Like, we complain about games all the time, not doing a good production, and then the problem with Kickstarter is they do such a great production, but on such a light game that you're like, mm-hmm. you know, f- f- like you said, Anthony. For again, depending on which version you back for this, but eighty three dollars, I could buy a really good game for eighty three dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Stop doing this. Make the game worse. <laughs> Jeez. That's really hard. <laughs> that's why they're acquisition disorders. All right. So that's everything that we want to pick up, but painfully is going to cost all the monies. <laughs> let's talk about the games we actually got to the table and let you know if those games are buying, you should run out and pick those games up. If those games are playing, you should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and you should avoid them because they're super, super expensive and just really super, super light. Or if those games are, in fact, the dreaded burn, you should avoid them at all costs. So, Anthony, what did you play this week? All right. So I got a chance to get the uh, Board and Dice recent release, Zapotec, to the table. Uh, this is from Fabio Lopiano, who has become, like, I, w- I won't say out of nowhere because I've been playing his games now for a few years, but just I didn't realize he was one of my favorite designers until I was looking at his release list. And I was like, oh, Kalimala. Ragusa, Merv, The Heart of Silk. These are all amazing games. And now Zapotec, right? So one of the things about Lopiano that makes his games so interesting is that he keeps them short, Um, which doesn't sound like a thing, but it's so difficult, so, so difficult to make a game complex with a lot of interesting decisions but not have it take two, three, four hours. And Lopiano's games, almost entirely, I can't think of one that doesn't do this, are less than 90 minutes. All of them. Like, actually less than 90 minutes. Not just on the box less than 90 minutes. They take an hour to an hour and a half tops. And so, the ability to do that and make the interesting decisions that you're going to engage with as a player so accessible and, and replayable is such an incredible skill that not a lot of people have. So that said, Zapotec does that as well. <laughs> um, in the game, and the, the game thematically, it, it, there are questions here to be had about the theme, right? The Zapotec were a pre-Columbian civilization uh, in, in Mesoamerica and you know roughly the area where Mexico is now, um, the, the state of Oaxaca. And so you're building temples in the game. There are cornfields and villages. You're making sacrifices to the gods. Like a lot of the things that be familiar to you in these kind of Mesoamerican, you know, pre-Columbian civilization games. There's been a bunch of them in recent years. I, I'm not an expert in that area, so I'm not going to say whether it's done effectively or not. I didn't feel like the game was ineffective in that way. It wasn't necessarily overt. And, and how it handled the theme, and it didn't feel like it was ignoring elements of it. But again, I'm not an expert in that, so I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to focus on the gameplay. Um, in the game itself, what you're doing is you are 
placing buildings out in multiple locations on the map, right? So how you do that is you're going to play a card every round. You're going to have a hand of cards that you start with, and every round you're going to play a card. Everybody does it simultaneously. Each card has a number on it, and the number is going to determine the turn order for that round. It's also going to determine what type of resources you're going to collect. So based on what's in the card, you look at your own personal little grid. Um, you have a player board with a grid on it, rows and columns, and you're going to pick a row or a column and take all of the resources shown in that row or column. You're going to be getting new tiles to add to those rows and columns throughout the game so that in future rounds, of which there are, I think, five, you will pick up more resources each time. So the first round, you're getting like two resources on this income phase. Later, you might get like nine resources, right? Um, once you've done that, you're going to take various actions. So a lot of these actions require advanced resources that you don't start the game with. So these are things like building the pyramids themselves, um, making sacrifices and moving up the track, uh, committing to these endgame scoring cards that will allow you to score points for all the various things you're doing. Um, and then, of course, you can build buildings. And the cost of the buildings is going to be related to the location of the buildings. There are a bunch of different places you can go, but the card you played at the beginning of the round determines where you're allowed to build. And there's a lot of different things, right? So there's three different regions, each represented by a different uh, type of temple. And then within those regions, there are different terrain types. And then within those terrain types, there are different building types. And so your card will have one of those three things on it. You'll either have a temple a terrain type, or a building type. And you can build in any of those three things. So if you pick a temple type, you're building in that third of the map. If you pick a terrain type, you're building in any of the thirds of the map, but only in that terrain. So only in the jungle, only in the in the mud near the volcano, whatever it might be. Um, and if you build a building type, only those types of buildings. Uh, and then you will place your building out. You take the tile that you replace with your building and you place it on your personal board. You get greater income in the future. And you kind of just go through that process throughout the various rounds of the game. And that's pretty much it, which sounds very simple. But to make the game work, to do as effectively as, as possible and, and hopefully win the game, you need to do this in a very efficient manner, right? So Merv was like this, Ragusa is like this, Kalamal's like this. You have a very limited number of actions to take. And it's whoever can use those limited actions in the most efficient possible way is going to come out on top, which I love that in games. That's my favorite type of Euro game is limit the resources as much as possible. And let's see who can twist and tweak and manage them the best possible way to get the most out of them. Uh, and Zapotec does that really well. So uh, again, the game is pretty quick. It does not take a tremendous amount of time to learn because there are only... I think six actions you can take and they're all listed out on your player card. Um, resource wise, it's pretty easy to keep track of that. There are six types of resources, but the, the, th you know, three basic ones, three advanced ones, but they all kind of correlate in ways that make sense. And the game itself, again, hour, hour and a half tops. So, um, Zopotec for me, I, I wasn't expecting a lot based on what other people had said about the game, but for me, it's a buy. I'm, and that might just be like, I really like this combination of accessible, quick, thinky euros uh, with lots of interesting decisions to be made. There just aren't that many of them. And so Lopiano just does it really well. 
And uh, it makes me all the more excited because I backed Autobahn, which was on Kickstarter pretty recently, which is his next game coming. I'm pretty excited about that because I've, you know, three games in a row now I've really, really enjoyed from him. Um, so yeah, Zapotec is from Board and Dice. Um, this was a review copy. I should mention that, that they did send us copies to review. Uh, but be sure to check this one out. It, I think it flew under the radar of a lot of people because it came out right around the same time of Tabanusi, which was their other big tea game that came out. And uh, I, I think it floated it in like early spring, which is a weird time. Mm. Yeah, they have a lot of a lot of games in this general genre, and a lot of them look very much alike. It's a lot of that yes. kind of beige, gold, green. So <clears throat> it's kind of hard to distinguish between them, especially if they're not getting table time out there. So it's it's great to have your review here on this because I've obviously looked at this game too. And again, since there's been so much and they've been so prolific recently, more than dice have that I was wondering if this is just, is, is this the net, the new, you know, Tedawakan, or is this a, just another kind of generic version or knockoff version, or just kind of playing off the other games that have been out there before. So it seems like this is somewhat streamlined. They, they did a good job here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it, it's hard. Cause like, you know, our, our rating system only has four stages. I would definitely put this a full step below like a Tedawakan, but yeah. It's it's still a buy. Like I want this in my collection. It's very good, and yeah. I want to play it more. But mm-hmm. it's it's not the big full experience you get from one of, like a big table hogging euro. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like it's a weird. It's almost like a filler, but it's not quite a filler because mm. it still takes a bit of time to set up. Um, Lupiano games are weird, and I feel like a lot of them fly under the radar for that reason. They don't fit. They're too heavy to be quick fillers and they're too light to mm-hmm. be full euros. And so people just ignore them, but they're almost to a T. They're all good. So if you haven't played a Lopiano game, to a T. You, yeah. <laughs> you said the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he did a thing. He did a thing there, folks. Just you, me, and you, me, and our listeners out there are the only ones who actually got that joke. Yeah. That, it's that a board and dice joke, dropping. guys. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so definitely check out all our reviews on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, and we'll have more upcoming for you. All right, so now on to our feature review. So our feature review this week is the all-time leader for the biggest acquisition disorders, the biggest IPs, the biggest promotional shows at Gen Con back in the flight report. Since we're going back into the 80s, we're doing all that kind of fun stuff. We thought about bringing back one of the greatest board game companies that have ever been out there. Anthony, it's the latest. It's the greatest. It's the all-time king. The top 10 fantasy flight games. Yeah. Yeah. It's This is bittersweet, guys. It's like, these are all amazing games. I own most of these. And like I said at the beginning of the show, this was the company I would wait for every year. Like, what do they it have? We, yeah. We would go stand in line to watch their press Crazy. conference. We didn't do that for yeah. any other company because we're like, we'll find out later. No. Um, and it's just whatever the reasons, whether it's leadership leaving or the asthma day acquisition or just the nature of the market or Kickstarter, whatever you want to blame for it. It just does. It doesn't exist anymore. They don't do all these things like their big game now mm-hmm. on the horizon that we know about 
is Twilight Imperium inscription, like a roll and write in the Twilight Imperium universe, which just doesn't even sound like a real thing. Um, like I'll buy it, but it's not, it's not making this list. I, I can sell you that now. Um, so it, it's fun. We're going to go back through like the 10 best fantasy flight games. The ones that, you know, we're excited to have played, excited to own the ones that if you can get them, you should check out. There's, dozens more that aren't on this list that you should also check out this is one of the companies that has hundreds of really really good games Uh, many 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 Mm -hmm. many of them are out of print but a lot of them are not you can still find a lot of these games if you look hard enough yeah we might see some of these games re-implemented later on in different Mm -hmm. ips or again with star wars kind of gearing up again to release all the tv shows and all the movies again maybe they they'll see a second life somewhere else or Maybe Fantasy Flight comes back from the dead. God only knows these days. Jeez. Right. <laughs> but for for right now, these these were the greatest games. Again, as a kid who grew up on all these different IPs, and some of which were Fantasy Flight's very own created IPs. Right. That really just, it really just, it had its own gravity well. Like we said, they had the flight report at Gen Con, and it was an event. You couldn't, you couldn't always get tickets for it. You couldn't always get in, but it was an event. They had all the people there. They had the, the sh- they did everything well. They did everything right. They did everything fantastic as far as what a game company could do to really excite uh, fans of, of the different industries. And they had a real genuine love for all of those IPs that they're using here that we're going to talk about today and the history of their own games and, and, they never, they never were cheap with it. They always did a really good job. It wasn't just a slapped on, pasted on theme. It was something really great and meaningful throughout throughout the time. So, you know, if nothing else, it's an acknowledgement for such a great game company. And again, even though a lot of these games are out of print, if you can track them down, you would be certainly having a great time at the table. So, Anthony, since these are mostly... Uh, your favorites of all time. I'm going to let you take the lead on this and I'll chime in as, as I weep that I did not get a chance to pick these up before they went out of print. Right. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, so we're going to start off with number 10 and this is kind of mm-hmm. a dual one. Uh, I was going to say key forge, but really this, this number 10 slot goes to all of the collectible, not collectible, but like the open play card games collectible systems that fantasy flight has started and subsequently let die (laughs) they have a long history of doing this these are not the only two games but for me keyforge and star wars destiny kind of went back to back where they're like this is an amazing system it's got a big thing everybody's really interested and like two years later they're like and it's dead now um yeah they keep claiming keyforge is coming back well i'll believe it when i see it it's been dead for a year now but uh, both these games are amazing. Uh, the Keyforge mm-hmm. single deck system, it's still one of my favorite card games of all time. I would absolutely jump right back into this if they relaunched it and they had open play near me. Star Wars Destiny is one of the best Star Wars card games ever made. And I think this one fell victim to the cost of production. But sure. both these games, just in the last five years, seven years or so, both these games came and went and are both just like they they reflect the brilliance in the development teams of fantasy flight at the time and also the realities of trying to put a game like this out in the market so unfortunately they're both gone right now 
Yeah, I, I think especially for Star Wars Destiny, the idea was the IP was so hot, right? Can't right. do any better than Star Wars when it comes to games. And for Star Wars Destiny, which was a beautifully produced game, and we, Anthony, you and I were just talking about Dice Masters, which is a fine game, but it was such a junky throwaway production right. where Star Wars <laughs> Destinies was a pristine production and you felt really great to own it. And it was, again... I think that and Keyforge certainly suffered from the lack of organized play. I don't think that when they that they thought that part out. I mean, the local friendly game store was certainly on the decline, if not bottomed out, prior to the pandemic. So when these games came out, they they had a bit of a life because there were such great games, but there was nobody out there supporting them like, you know, like Magic out there, right? Magic was just anywhere you go, there's these things, but yeah, if you took your giant Star Wars Destiny kit with you, you're not going to find anybody. Yeah, Keyforge people had some decks, and it was certainly a fun kind of game to get to the table. But again, you didn't have a community built around it. And again, part of that was the local game stores going out of business and nothing replacing them at that point. So right. it's really sad to see those go. But Richard Garfield did a great job on Keyforge. Again, I mean, what a bold... What a bold move after doing magic. Like, <laughs> right. I would do magic and I would just like lock myself in my house and be like, I did the greatest thing of all time. I'm done. I'm not going yeah. to go back to the table. And he's right. like, you know what, Keyforge? And you're like, dude, why would you want to do that? Like, you already did the best thing. But Keyforge was great. A lot of fun. And Star Wars Destiny, it's a shame. I, I Miniature Market is like throwing it out the window. All the companies are getting rid of it. You could get like gravity feeds for like 30 bucks. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I want to, but yeah, the organized play is just not there, sadly. Right. Yeah, and Keyforge, like, that's an asterisk. It may not be dead. Like, they claim they're reworking the algorithm. So this game died for two reasons. One is the pandemic. Like, it was very yeah. popular. It peaked in popularity right before the pandemic. Like, I was going to organize yes. play events every single week up until February mm -hmm. 2020. And then it died because, you know, we couldn't go to stores anymore and stores were closed. Um, and mm -hmm. then they broke their own algorithm, right? The game is based on a computer algorithm. The algorithm didn't work anymore. They had to cancel the game because of that. They say they haven't canceled it. They say they have six more expansions planned. If that's true, I will be over the moon, but it's been over a year and we've heard nothing. So we'll see. Oh, well. uh, all right. So number nine, moving on to number nine, we have two more games that are out of print that, again, I, I wish they'd bring back both of these games. Um, but both of them have one thing in common. They take place in the Terranoth universe, and therefore we're probably not getting them back in their current form. Um, first up is Rune Wars. is a big, sprawling, epic exploration adventure Euro crossover game um, that came out in the late 2000s. Um, got an update in the early 2010s, and then just nothing happened with it. One of the great games of all time, though absolutely wish they would bring this back in some other form. They own the game and they own the IP. They could do anything with this and they just don't. And then Battlelore 2nd Edition, I don't know if they still own the rights to Battlelore. They bought it, they did some Game of Thrones stuff, and then they did the Terranoth version of Battlelore with 2nd Edition, which was a brilliant re-implementation of the original Battlelore, um, which I believe was Days of Wonder originally. And they just kind of let it die pretty quickly. Like, they did a... They, it, you know, you had the human faction and the demons, and they added the undead. They didn't even get to the fourth faction, um, let alone the fifth, with the elves and the dwarves. 
the game just kind of died on the vine, despite being just this really fantastic two-player skirmish game. Uh, and so both of these games died early deaths. Both of them are brilliant. Both of them could come back in new forms if they wanted to. I don't know if they want to, but I hope so. <laughs> both of them are great. I own both of these. I hope they come back. Yeah, I own both of these too. I don't have all the Battle Lore Second Edition because, again, I was always waiting for the Dwarves and Elves to come out. The Elves were my favorite faction in Rune Wars, and Rune Wars was a fantastic game that is kind of a throwback to the old earlier coffin box board games mm. where you had these gigantic battles, and especially I think with the Banners of War was their expansion mm-hmm. that really opened the game up. And then you had these moments in the game, certain phases where your hero could do things. Again, tremendous idea. It slows the game down a little bit, but it's still a very epic game. If you got the Coffin Box edition, you got the Plastic Mountains, which is kind of fun. But if you got even if you got the regular edition, it was a great game. It was well balanced. The factions played differently. They had different units. It was just it was a really fun, amazing game to play. And then they just dumped it. And again, it's this Terranoff universe that they made lesser games as time went on, but they did certainly want to keep the universe. But it's so funny because when they had the miniatures games and the other games that came out in this universe, Rune Wars and Battle Lords 2nd Edition were always the best products from that Terranoff universe. And it's it just it boggles the mind that these games were not like supported and reinforced because again. It would have, it, it would just honestly been the best thing ever. I guess maybe you didn't make all the monies, right? Because you bought a board right. game instead of buying like six hundred troop pieces that they thought people were going to do, and nobody did that, right? When they came out with Rune War Miniatures game, everyone was like, "And eh, no." So, and then five minutes later, Star Wars they came out with their own Star Wars competitor in their own company, and it was just like, "What are you guys doing?" I don't yeah. know, but again. If you want Terranoff Universe, if you want some of the best fantasy board gaming outside of Lord of the Rings, Rune Wars and Battle Lord Second Edition, by far the best games. By far. Yeah, definitely, definitely recommend those. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to number eight. Um, we had to mention the Arkham Files family of games, right? There are dozens of these in the Fantasy Flight family. Um, we are not Arkham people. Right. I own a few of these, but like it's not really our jam. But if we're mm-hmm. going to mention an Arkham game, because we have to, <laughs> like these are some of the best games that Fantasy Flight has ever made. Mansions of Madness, second edition, it's going to make the list. This game took an older game that they had, Mansions of Madness, that was a bit messy. Admittedly, it, it could fall apart at the seams when playing it. And it, it Short all that up, it made it more accessible by implementing the app, which I know is controversial, but it really works. It brought back all the old content. You could use all the old content in the new game, and it added multiple expansions, all within like a year or two. Like within two years, this game had 10 or 11 different possible ways to play through it. There was so much content for this game, um, and it just worked. Like having played through several of these, and, and it's not just like a six hour game, you had one and two hour you know, instances of the game that you could play through, or you had six to eight hour instances. Like they built the game for everybody to access it in the way they wanted to. So whether you wanted a simple, quick, accessible Arkham game, like the living card game, or you wanted something long and epic, like Arkham Horror or Elder Tor, Mansions of Madness kind of fit in the middle there and really kind of nailed it in a way that um, 
all the Arkham Files games did to some degree, but this one really did it the most. Yeah, I never got into these things because obviously Cthulhu, right? Like you have right. to be a follower of Cthulhu. But again, Fantasy Flight does what Fantasy Flight always had done is just elevate the genre, the concept, the IP to the next level. And they did it here. I, I don't have a copy of this. But again, even though I am not, you, you know, I, I guess there's not tentacles coming out of me <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> um, this this certainly would have been a game that I would have picked up now having known how great it was. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up, number seven, Descent, Journeys in the Dark, specifically second edition. Uh, so mm-hmm. they have since released Descent, whatever the third edition is. I forgot the stupid name that they have of it, but um, Legends of the Dark. And it's like $200 and it's part one of three. I don't even know if they're working on parts two and three at this point. But uh, Descent Journeys in the Dark was a more traditional you buy a box of stuff, you can get whatever expansions fit for your needs, and there are dozens of expansions to work from, right? The game is now out of print. They stopped making it because of Legends of the Dark, which is terrible because this was an amazing game. The app was really good, offered a lot of ways to play the game either solo or with other people in a permutation that you couldn't necessarily do without the full table because it was a one versus many game. Um, They released expansions for this game for like eight years, I think, something like that. And then they had a Star Wars version of it with Imperial Assault, which I own everything for. And I think it's a brilliant game. Um, but also out of print, they stopped making content for that as well. It was the dungeon crawl, right? If you wanted a dungeon crawling game for that period of time from like, again, 2010 up through, you know, 2018 descent journeys in the dark. Second edition was the way to go. And, uh, you know, legends of the dark by all accounts is a very good game. It's just somewhat inaccessible because of the cost, but Journeys in the Dark for $80 was a heck of a lot of game in a box. And uh, it's a shame that's out of print now. Hmm. Yeah. Didn't I get this for you for a gift? I thought yeah. I did, right? You did, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Way to go, me. Yeah, yeah this is, I have again, this. this is... <laughs> again, this was kind of like you said, Anthony, this is the, the, the definitive edition of Descent. And I know they have a new version of it that everyone kind of like... You know, it's just like, ooh, you guys did that? That that did not work out well. So I guess if you can find this edition, this is probably the best edition to go with. And again, Descent, again, there were a lot of Dungeons and Dragons version of these dungeon crawls, but Descent, Journeys in the Dark did it best. So find that version, and then you'll understand why everyone's a little iffy about the new version that came out. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think you can still find pretty inexpensive copies of this if you go to like eBay. Like they're not mm. terribly expensive. This game's been out for a long time. There's a lot of copies floating around, sure. but you cannot find new copies anymore. So soon enough, it will be very expensive. So if you want it, get it before you can't get it anymore. Um, yeah, it was at the at the time, especially a very expensive game. I think it was like was it like a hundred dollars, ninety to hundred dollars at the time. It was eighty, it, uh, which yeah, it, but like ten fifteen years ago, that was a lot. So yeah. Uh, all right, next up we have number six, Star Wars or Armada. So we did not include X-Wing Miniatures game uh, for a couple of reasons. One being that it, it's based on another system which has been implemented in a lot of different ways with Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica and tripods and, and all this stuff. But we also 
feel that Star Wars Armada is kind of a better game, right? It takes everything that X-Wing Miniatures game does and it scales it up and gives you the capital ships and a much more epic, sweeping, customizable uh, experience at the table. Whereas Miniatures game, you know, it's, it's a dogfighting game. It's it's more, it's smaller in scope. Mm-hmm. This is much bigger in scope, right? Yeah, Anthony, do you know that those capital ships, they have a lot of smaller ships in there that they can actually utilize any time to take down a, I don't know, a shuttlecraft or a escaping <laughs> rebel, you know, I don't know. Might might come up, but if you if you do play Star Wars Amada, it's going to be hard to watch Star Wars sh- shows in the future. But <laughs> again, this was a thing that I know for you, Anthony, and me as well, we invested so heavily in Star Wars X-Wing Miniature Game, which is a fantastic game. And then when Armada came out, it was like, huh? Oh, there's like this weirdly bendable extra arm that kind of comes into play. And you're like, oh, okay, this is this is fine. And then I don't think anybody at that time could understand how big this game was going to be. And I mean big as far as like the number of pieces, the scope, but the gigantic ships they added to this. Mm. Like it is unreal the big capital ships that came into play. Like we're talking hundreds of dollars for, for these Armada ships. And I am all kinds of jealous because I, I, I really wish that, you know, I came along a little bit later so I could have picked up Star Wars Armada. And again, I'm sure like you can still pick up a lot of the pieces. I think Barnes and Noble usually every once in a while over the last couple of years, it might be out of print at this point, but they used to throw those ships like 50% off. And every time I would just go to Barnes and Noble, I'd be like, huh? Uh, I can't do it. Uh, maybe. Uh, no. So, yeah, I can't do it. Just cause I, I know where it leads. I know where that, I know where that road goes, man. Yeah. Just... <laughs> so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a rough. Uh, all right. Yeah. So Star Wars Armada, definitely check that out if you can. Uh, number five on the list, Lord of the Rings, the card game. So mm-hmm. uh, over the years, Fantasy Flight has made a lot of different living card games. This was among the earliest of them and the first of the ones that could be played solo out of the box. So it became very, very popular because while it was designed and pitched originally as a cooperative game, people bought it and they played it alone. That's what I did. And they released new content for this for over 10 years. Um, yeah. they recently relaunched the game. They streamlined a lot of the content. They re-released it. It's not really a full second edition because it's taking all the original cards and kind of just repackaging them and making them more accessible. Whereas all the old stuff was often out of print. Um, but the game still works like the core elements of the game by Nate French. They're just really, really solid. Now there are multiple versions of this. If you want it, there's the Arkham horror living card game which many people say is the best version of this because of the story mode and the more dedicated true solo mode. There's Marvel champions, which focuses more on the combat, um, which I love and I own a lot of stuff for, but the original one, the OG Lord of the Rings, the card game is still the one, (laughs) the one game to rule them all. And it, it's still around new content coming out. Got new stuff in today, actually. So um, number five, Lord of the Rings, the card game. Yeah, I, I have the base set for this, but I never picked up anything else. And in part, it's kind of funny because I remember way back in the day when this came out, I think it was a another Black Friday sale where they had a number of the expansions available. Again, kind of like Armada, I was like, all right, I got to put the base game in my cart and then this expansion. 
and that expansion and that expansion and that, and then I think I got up to like ninety hundred dollars or by much much more. Uh, I mean, games did were much cheaper back in the day, and I was just like, I can't. Like, I it's this is an all or nothing kind of game. Like, if you love Lord <laughs> of the Rings, and again, a fantastic system. But yeah, this is something certainly to kind of invest in because, like you said, Anthony, whether you play it solo or you play with a group, you're going to have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, number four on the list, another LCG, Android Netrunner. Um, this mm-hmm. is a game, unfortunately, I did not play until it was already out of print. Uh, so this was almost certainly Fantasy Flight's most popular uh, living card game because of the competitive scene. It was a completely asymmetrical two-player LCG in which players took on the um, the roles of the runners of the corporations, and there's multiple different runners and multiple different corporations. You can mix and match everything. And I, again, I played this one after it went out of print, and I was instantly enamored. I was like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. I can't believe someone made this game. And unfortunately, the license expired, and it just, like, overnight, too. It was like, there was no warning that this was going to end. Um, people still keep this thing going. There's fan expansions. There's you can print cards off a lot of this content still floating around out there. Uh, I don't know if this will ever come back. I'm not even hundred percent sure who owns the rights anymore, but it's a very, very popular. It's a shame that it died because the competitive scene was so robust, but just a brilliant two player card game. Yeah. I never got a chance to play this myself, but I just always heard the greatest things about it. Yep. Uh, speaking of two player games, number three, uh, one of my favorite two-player games of all time, probably second only to War of the Ring, which Fantasy Flight did make, produce the first edition of, or at least published in the U.S., uh, Star Wars Rebellion. This was the game because for the longest time, Fantasy Flight was not allowed to make a Star Wars board game. They had rights to the miniatures. They did not have rights to the board games. And so we kept saying, give us a real heavy hobby board game based on star wars and they did not exist there wasn't one and then star wars rebellion came along and it's exactly what we wanted it is a absolutely brilliant massive epic two-player star wars board game similar to war of the ring but in the star wars universe and yeah you owe it to yourself to play this if you have not yeah even if you're not a star wars fan this and War of the Ring are two games you absolutely positively need to get to the table because they're so amazing to play and everything's done correctly. You have Death Stars in here too. I mean, it's just, it's it's both of them are, are beautiful games. Star Wars Rebellion, you can argue in some cases, does it a little bit better with its expansion as far as the battles are concerned. But man, I mean... We asked for it. They gave it to us. I think in a lot of ways, this will always be, at least for me, the definitive Star Wars game. Yeah. Just because it's just, it's an amazing game. It's uh, such a good game. Yeah. I honestly don't know how you top it. So. I don't uh, know. They tried. They did. <laughs> they failed. They have not yet done so. Yeah. Uh, all right. Number two on the list. Battlestar Galactica, the board game. This is the epic hidden movement, hidden role game based on the Battlestar Galactica television series. This one had a print about six years ago and instantly like you could find this anywhere and then went out of print and then you couldn't find it. And instantly it became incredibly hard to find incredibly expensive, especially the expansions of which there were three. Um, There really aren't any better, you know, hidden trader games period. Right, because most of them are more party style, 
or they're like the hidden movement type of games that are just like chasing people around the map. Battlestar Galactica did it right. It is one of the most thematic experiences out there, period, as a board game. <laughs> and they've brought it back with Cthulhu stuff with Unfathomable, which by all accounts is very good if you like Cthulhu stuff. But uh, for me, it's always going to be Battlestar Galactica, the board game, which is one of my some of my best gaming memories are playing this game. So. When I ask you to shoot a guy, Anthony, you gotta oh shoot a guy. Gosh. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you had one job. Your special ability is to shoot somebody. Shoot somebody, man. That's all I'm saying. He switched the cards out right in front of everybody. You shoot the guy, all right? Jeez. Uh, one of our deathbeds. It's gonna be like someone's last words. Oh, you shoot the guy. <laughs> you just shoot the guy, brother. So, oh, you, know, you know what's funny about this if you if you were not into board gaming like a decade ago the idea of like ip board games being like awful right maybe if you go back 20 years or 30 years in fact it was video games that anytime they had an ip it was a bad video game it was like pasted on it was terrible it was like it was such a bad game so when you said like oh cool you know like here's a game based on your favorite movie, TV show, or movie. It was like, oh, that's going to be the worst. And Battlestar Galactica, the board game, for me, as far back as I can remember, again, there's been other games that have been out there, but it was the first modern IP that just got the best treatment possible. Like, thematically and mechanically, it was just a perfect game. Like, if you knew anything about the, the TV show of the modern era it was just it was the best it was and then you're like oh this is great and then they came out with it they came out with multiple expansions that somehow made it better and you were just like how is this possible like how are they doing this it it just it there's so many ways that this game should have went wrong and or the expansions just made the game worse and at no time was this game bad it was it was quick. It was fun. It was thematic. It played really well. There was a lot of different aspects to it. You could you know you can go on a space fighter and you know a viper and you could fight you know Cylons out there or you could deal with the politics. You could help fix the shit. Like there was so many different things to do. I don't know how they did it. I don't know why. I, I just don't get it. I don't know. They threw so much effort into this game and it just pays off every time you play this game. Every time it's out of print, but if you can find it, you can play it. It's literally the best hidden role game that that's out there because it has a real game behind it as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. And that brings us to number one, which if you know anything about Fantasy Flight, you already know what this game is because we haven't mentioned it yet. Uh, and that's Twilight Imperium, fourth edition. This is like coming into the hobby pretty quickly within a few months of entering the board game hobby, this was the game that kind of floated around as like the big game that you have to play, right? At some point, at least once, you had to play Twilight Imperium. At the time, for me, it was third edition, but now it's fourth edition. And I just, I didn't know anybody owned it. I never got a chance to play it. It was very intimidating, the thought of playing it, because it seemed like this big, epic 10-hour experience. I'm like, when am I ever going to play that? And then... They they surprise announced and launched Twilight Imperium 4th Edition one of the years we were at Gen Con. I picked it up because we were there, so why not? And by the end of the year, we got a chance to play this. And I've now played it about half a dozen times. 
And it is a ridiculously long but incredible experience. Uh, you don't like most things don't live up to that kind of hype, but it really does do everything that it says it's going to do in a way that's almost impossible to describe because you describe it in a certain way and people think, oh, that sounds really long and it sounds really complex. It's not that complex and it doesn't feel that long because you're always engaged. You're always doing something in the game. Uh, so Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, for me, among my favorite gaming memories and experiences and a game that despite being a seven, eight hour game, I will always say yes to playing as long as I can get out of the house. Uh, that's our number one. Yeah, not a surprise here. Again, Twilight Imperium, and especially the fourth edition, has been one of those grail games, even though it's always been in print, that everyone's wanted to get, and especially everyone's wanted to get to the table. And when you do get to the table, it is an epic experience. It's an experience that everybody wants to have, even if they are not into these kind of big games, because there is something, even after all of these years, and after all of these board games I recently talked about, Eclipse Second Edition, that Twilight Imperium, again, the fourth edition is streamlined and just beautiful for so many reasons, but there's something about Twilight Imperium that if you say it to a board gamer, you know, about that's going to be a game day, maybe they can play it, they could, like, it, there's just something different about it. There's something, there's something that still resonates as an event, and it's yeah. Twilight Imperium. I, I, I can't explain it. It's just, again, it's one of those games that is unlike any other game that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can't argue with that. All right, so there you go. The top 10 fantasy flight games. Check them out, play them, get them to the table. And if you do have a chance, pick them up. I think you'll absolutely enjoy and love the experience. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this time. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. Take care. Bye. See ya.